Yeah, I'd say ultimately my drive, you know, is based on the excitement that exists across our company, you know, around the emergence of the Eastern region. You know, and we view it as a really critical element of the future success of our company. You know, you look at the set of acquisitions back in 2018, you know, the, the, the former peak resorts and, you know, the scale of our Eastern region now within our network, you know, really crossed a threshold. Welcome to the storm. your host, Stuart Winchester, East Coast. I have not forgotten you. This will be the first of five East Coast-focused pods I have lined up for the next month. First, before we get started with that, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. That is the heart of this whole operation and the fastest and best way to get future podcasts and articles. Did you read my piece the other day on why it's time to blow up the big mountain lift ticket? If you subscribe to the free newsletter, that came right to your inbox. So please join me there. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Stormski Journal. First, let's talk about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you are going to be shocked when you see this new format. It is an absolute monster. 16 and a half inches tall by 10 and three quarters inches wide. What has not changed is the incredible wide ranging writing and show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, shipping very, very soon, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. But the range here is huge. Another gallery to announce, Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That's a new code now. Go higher dash 10. That will ensure that you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 60, Tim Baker. Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts Eastern Region. Watching the Northeast ski scene evolve over the past four years has been absolutely mesmerizing. Not since Les Otten was buying up resorts and tossing out new chairlifts and terrain expansions like candy at a parade in the 1990s have we seen this much change this quickly. The difference this time is you have an established player with a sustainable business model. Vail entering the East had immediate and widespread impact. First, it ended the tired practice of charging $1,000 or more for a single mountain season pass. Second, it brought serious competition in the form of the Icon Pass. Third, it made it possible for Eastern skiers to plan a trip out West without having to buy a whole separate lift pass. That's been good for all of us. It's been good for skiers who get better prices and more variety. And counterintuitively, it's been good for the independent mountains who have had to actually get creative with their pass products and in some cases join together or join the Indy Pass. And it's been good for the region, which is getting a ton of investment into what were some very tired mountains. So Vale is here in the East, whether you like it or not. And I am super pumped to get some perspective on how Vale is approaching this region and where they plan to take this thing. Let's hear it. My guest today is the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts Eastern Region. He oversees 23 of Vail's 34 North American resorts, including seven mountains in New England, six between New York and Pennsylvania, and 10 in the Midwest. Prior to moving east, he held roles as Senior Director of Operations at Beaver Creek Resort in Colorado, and most recently, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Crested Butte Mountain Resort. 
He also spent three years in the NFL as a wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Carolina Panthers, and San Diego Chargers. Tim Baker is my guest. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate you having me. Tim, you know, I think you're the first former NFL player I've hosted on the podcast. So let's start there. Tell us about your time in the league. Sure. No, it's uh, it was quite the experience. You know, I I grew up in West Texas outside of Amarillo. So, you know, you can imagine that there wasn't a time in my life that football wasn't a pretty big part of it. So, you know, growing up that way, um, you know, quite a thrill, you know, competing at that level. You know, I mean, you hear a little bit about kind of Friday night lights and, you know, that was my life in my youth. So, um, you know, so but I would say that my experience in the NFL was probably a little bit different than what most people see on Sundays. You know, I was a, I was a grinder you know, grinder at the bottom of the roster, you know, fighting for a spot on the practice squad and, you know, in the occasional call up to the active roster. And, um, you know, when I got called up, you know, my job was to basically run around the field like a wild man on special teams. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was a wide receiver in college at Texas Tech, but in the NFL, uh, you know, special teams was was my role. You know, I was a wedge buster on the kickoff. I was the flyer on the punt team, you know, all the dirty work. You know, I, I remember those days kind of feeling like I was either a bowling ball or a bowling pin, um, you know, but, you know, my highlight was certainly playing for the playing for the Steelers. You know, I was there in 2001 um, when we made a strong run in the playoffs and, you know, and, and my heart got broken by the, uh, by the Patriots in mm. the AFC championship in, in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, but I would say that, you know, probably my biggest memories of the league was, was the speed. You know, and just how fast everything happened compared to college and, um, you know, the level of talent, um, you know, that's at, at every every position, you know, on those teams. But, you know, I would say that, you know, my blood runs black and gold these days. Um, you know, Steelers are definitely the team uh, for me and my family. And, you know, at some point I'll definitely grab a game, um, you know, whenever I'm out in the East. But, um, you know, and I've got my terrible towel on display in my background. So. Um, but, it was, you know, it was a great experience and, um, you know, so many things that, you um, that I enjoy sharing with folks over time. So thanks for asking. It sounds like a dream for a West Texas boy. Did you grow up skiing at all? I did. You know, I was, uh, my family were weekend warriors. Um, you know, like a, a lot of folks, you know, my mountains were, you know, Northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado. Um, you know, a lot of days at, at Angel Fire and Taos and uh, Red River. Um, I think Red River was where I first learned to ski, you know, as soon as I could stand. Um, you know, went up into Colorado to Wolf Creek, um, you know, Copper Mountain was a, a pretty frequent visit. I remember my dad, his uh, roommate in college had a condo, you know, and, and nice. you know, the best real estate is the best friend. So <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we took advantage. And so we were on the road a lot of weekends. So you get out of the NFL. Did you, I imagine that you weren't allowed to ski a lot when you were playing football. Uh, w was it that sort of bug to get back to your youth and that skiing part of it that drove you to the ski industry or was it something else? You know, it was definitely something else. Um, you know, it, it actually was never a draw, you know, you know, like so many people that, who, who make a life in the ski industry, you know, I followed a road, never expected. Um, you know, when, when my NFL career ended in San Diego with the Chargers, um, you know, I met and married my beautiful wife and and, and I remember when Jen and I were dating, there was a point in our relationship that she shared with me three things that she was looking for in the man she wanted to spend her life with. And, you know, and the first thing was, you know, to share a faith and have hope in Jesus Christ. And number two was to be ambitious. And then number three was to be able to ski at least as good as her. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the second she said all that, I was pretty sure that relationship was going to go somewhere. And, um you know, I ultimately began a, a career in real estate in, in San Diego, focusing on some of the you know high rise mixed use developments in the urban markets. And, you know, my boss at that time, out of the blue, joined Vell Resorts and, you know, he was hired to run the real estate division. And, you know, this was back when Vell Resorts was was in the real estate business, kind of similar to, to many of the large ski area operators at that time. And, um, you know, developing base areas and selling real estate to drive cash flow and, um, to, you know, to result in reinvestment. And, but, you know, given my wife's love for skiing as well as my own, um, you know, we packed up our things and, and followed my boss to Vail. Um, you know, that's where we first lived. And I commuted to I commuted from Breckenridge to Vail and Keystone to work on some of our base area projects at that time. And, you know, and, and we didn't have kids. And so when we weren't working, we were skiing our tails off. And you know, in the summer, we, we, we rode bikes. You know, I'm super passionate about mountain biking. You know, I'd, I'd say like my Wi-Fi pat or my Wi-Fi name in my house 
is rather be biking. So <laughs> and it's true for me the majority of the time, you know, now 15, 15 years later, I'm in the midst of an unexpected life's work in the ski industry. So that's how we made our way. Well, I do want to talk about your career, Tim, but first I have to ask, can you ski as well as Jen yet? I can definitely outski my wife. <laughs> um, you know, she's going to listen to this and we're going to have some serious debates. All um, right. But I've absolutely surpassed her and I was always ahead of her, but she likes to claim the other, but that's all right. What makes okay. our relationship fun? I sense a ski off coming on. Uh, all right. <laughs> Take us through your career here, Tim. So, so you've been with Vail since 2004. Uh, tell us about both your career and just the evolution of the company because it it's just changed so much over the last 17 years. Yeah, it has. You know, it's been quite a ride. Um, you know, a lot of twists and turns. And, you know, you'll you likely recall back in the late 2000s when 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 Bell introduced the Epic Pass, mm -hmm. uh, we got out of the real estate business altogether. And 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 with that, you know, along with many others across the company, my role with with Bell Resorts was eliminated. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was separated from the company in 2008. And, you know, and about that time, my wife and I had moved to Breckenridge and and neither of us were sure what we wanted to do, but there was no way we were leaving the mountains. And um, and so um, I made a change from real estate and moved into kind of base area operations at, at Keystone, where I was the executive director of what's called the kind of the Keystone Neighborhood Company, which is essentially kind of the master association covering the primary base areas of the mountains. And, um, you know, a couple of years later, we, we eventually moved to, uh, to Eagle County in Colorado to Beaver Creek. Uh, where I held a you know number of roles, mostly focused again in base area operations and and managing the various stakeholder relationships at the resort. And um, you know Beaver Creek has an incredibly complicated community structure, and so I, I had my fair share of unique experiences building relationships between the mountain and you know commercial and residential and community stakeholders. And um, you know I had the good fortune of working with some amazing leaders. Um, during those years at Beaver Creek, you know, I started out when you know John Garnsey was over Beaver Creek when I was first hired, and and then uh, Doug Lovell, uh, Beth Howard, you know, Beth is now the Chief Operating Officer of Bell Mountain, mm. you know, Chris Garno, Pat Campbell, and and I would say you know one story in particular that really stands out to me that that influenced my journey was actually a conversation with Doug Lovell many many years ago. He was the the uh, chief operating officer of Beaver Creek at that time. And, and I remember asking him one day um, if it was possible to go from the role I was in at that time um, to, a, to the role of a COO. Mm -hmm. and, and he told me point blank that that was not going to happen. And, and, you know, and, and he did share directly with me of the things that I need to work on and some of the investments I needed to make in, in others around me. And, you know, I look back on that conversation with such gratitude that he was so candid with me. Uh, you know, he, he really put me on a path to absorb as much as I could on, uh, you know, about the ski industry and grow my leadership capacity and, 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 and impact. So, you know, that at some point down the road, I could ask that question again, and maybe the answer would be different. Um, so, yeah, so, that, you know, that was a big, big moment in, uh, in, in, in my journey on trying to pursue, you know, greater and greater opportunity. What were some of the things that he told you and just kind of tying this into your football career, I, I know part of being a football player is constantly improving and constantly listening to people tell you you're not doing this right you need to you need to refine your approach so so how much did that mentality kind of factor into you being open to taking his advice and what specifically was that advice well i mean definitely with my football background you know i grew up in a feedback rich environment so you know <laughs> there was there was no shortage of, of feedback and so i was pretty comfortable with it you know, and I do remember some elements of that conversation that, you know, he gave me some good advice about range and, you know, and the more things that you can do, you know, puts you in the position of, of having your number called when the opportunity arises. And, and so, you know, I spent so much time, um, you know, outside of my specific scope, you know, I used to go up on the mountain and bump chairs. I'd, you know, ski around as we were putting the mountain together for, you know, snowmaking to understand kind of how we were trying to uh, to build the mountain to be sustainable for, for the entire season. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go up inside lifts with our lift maintenance team to kind of understand, you know, how to how to speak the language um, and to at least get to the point where I could be dangerous, um, you know, with my perspective for for as many elements of the business as I could. And and it goes back to, you know, how I was successful in, in the NFL. You know, if I wasn't willing to to play special teams and learn as many positions as I possibly could, 
there's no way I would have had the, you know, the opportunities that I did. And so, you know, that definitely bled, bled into my career in, in, in uh, the ski industry. So you kept moving up from Beaver Creek was Crested Butte next. That was the, you know, the next opportunity in line. And, you know, so that, that obviously came about with our, our triple peaks acquisition in, in 2018. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, that was, that was initially a trying experience, you know, leading an integration of Bell resorts to a place like Crested Butte, um, you know, drove a lot of questions by a lot of people on like, you know, what, what, what was this going to mean? Um, you know, but I look back on that experience with, you know, a lot of pride in the, the hot, the hard fought relationships and, um, you know, so many stakeholders in a place like that who really care. And, you know, I, I would start with the, the CBMR team and, you know, the leaders who were, were a part of that resort upon acquisition, you know, ski patrol, the ski and ride pros, uh, you know, the town councils, county commissioners, you know, so many relationships. And, and I would say that some of my best memories, you know, were skiing early in the morning with ski patrol, um, you know, I'd go up and join them on their, their morning control routes, you know, you know, I guess an upside of being the GM is that you got to get out and test the product from time right. to time, you know, make sure it's acceptable to the guest. And, you know, I can tell you that there were some days in, in um, you know, Phoenix Bowl and Third Bowl and Tia Kali that, um, you know, conditions were more than acceptable. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, you know, looking at Crested Butte, um, you know, the result has ultimately been that, you know, that resort really fits perfectly within our network. And, um, you know, a, a location with experiences that are that are so diverse from, you know, many of our other locations in Colorado. And um, but ultimately, you know, my whole family fell in love with Crested Butte and, and we certainly miss it. But but, yeah, but in the end, you know, we're only a short drive back to the mountains. And, you know, I expect my family will spend most of their weekends up there this winter. Talk just a little bit. I know the integration is one set of challenges, Tim, but talk just a little bit about the unique challenges facing Crested Butte as that community evolves. You have so many different factors from short-term housing to the inability to build new housing stock or the great challenge to try to do so to this sort of great relocation of remote workers during COVID. Just what is Crested Butte, what are the challenges Crested Butte is facing right now? And how did you deal with all those as a leader of the ski area having to work with the community? Yeah, you know, I would say for Crested Butte, you know, a lot of the things that that community faces are, are not unique. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, COVID really unlocked the desirability of, of being in, in the mountains. And, you know, I think a lot of folks, you know, probably tried it out, you know, almost were forced to, to get outdoors and, and you know, and, and, and get into, you know, locations like Crested Butte uh, to kind of ride it out. And, and I think people all of a sudden realized, you know, how special those places are and, and, and so um, I think, uh, you know, as, as we move forward, you know, partnership is going to be where these these challenges and where solutions can can unfold. And, you know, I think in our, our, our time in Crested Butte and, and continuing now, you know, you know, Tara, who's the, the general manager there is, you know, working really hard to can just continue conversations, um, you know, continue, you know, engaging all the different stakeholders because there is no single stakeholder that will be able to solve um, all these challenges. It's going to take innovation. Um, you know, a lot of the challenges that these communities face are a function of, um, of innovation. And so now, you know, we have got to identify, you know, new innovations to, um, you know, secure the sustainability of, of these communities in the long term. Um, so, you know, Crested Beach, you know, probably no different. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit more challenging because of the physical location, geography. Um, you know, you, you don't have as many, you know, contractor options for construction and, you know, that drives, you know, scarcity and the ability to execute some of the things that you want to get done. Um, but I think overall, Crested Butte's going to face some of the same challenges that almost all of the resort communities face as we look forward. So it'll be very interesting to watch these mountain communities evolve over the next several years. Uh, you have a whole different set of challenges now. You are now in the eastern region, VP and COO, as I mentioned. Uh, tell us about how that opportunity came up and why you decided to take it. Yeah, well, you know, I think ultimately I learned over the many years I've been in the industry that, you know, particularly with Bell Resorts, that the only thing that's constant is change. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, at the conclusion of last winter, you know, conversations began about kind of the, the next phase, the next round of changes across the company. And, and one of them was for me to consider this role. And yeah, I'd say ultimately my drive, um, you know, is based on the excitement that exists across our company, you know, around the emergence of the Eastern region. 
Um, you know, and we view it as a really critical element of the future success of our company. You know, you look at the set of acquisitions back in 2018, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the former peak resorts mm -hmm. and, you know, the scale of our Eastern region now within our network, you know, really crossed a threshold, um, you know, across a threshold for, for access to new markets, uh, populations. And so, you know, with so much opportunity in the East to improve that accessibility and, and introduce more and, and new skiers and riders to this great sport that, you know, it serves a critical objective. And, you know, not only for Bell Resorts, but the whole industry. Um, and, you know, you've probably heard a little bit about our commitment, um, you know, to being epic for everyone. Um, you know, this is something that we take really serious and, you know, we want to contribute to the growth and vitality of, of our sport. Um, and so, you know, all of that, you know, plays into, you know, our, our long-term strategies as, as a company. And, and so you combine that with the opportunity to lead alongside the teams that work so hard across the Eastern region to deliver the experiences that, um, you know, the, 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 the intense, passionate skiers and riders of the East expect, you know, there's no role I'd rather be in, um, than this one. So, you know, we're continuing to learn more and more each day, but, um, you know, fortunately, as I mentioned, you know, we've got strong leaders at all of our mountains who are putting in the hard work. And so being a part of that is really exciting to me. It is an enormous opportunity. I grew up in the Midwest and live in the Northeast now, and, and they're, they're very distinct ski cultures. I'm curious, Tim, of your impressions so far of Midwestern and Northeast ski cultures as you've gotten to know the folks who uh, attend your mountains. Yeah, I'm definitely learning more every day, um, you know, but the things that, that you know, stand out to me is, you know, I'd say, you know, passion you know, loyalty, tradition. Um, you know, I think each of these mountains have, you know, drastically different, different character and culture. And, but, you know, what, what I love about skiers and riders in the East is, is, is what I would call intense love, you know, <laughs> intense love for the sport. Um, you know, they'll tolerate a lot from what nature throws at them to get in their laps. And, That's you know, and, and, and I think for somebody like me, you can't help but be inspired by that to do right. a great job and, and to let that, you know, intense love manifest itself on the mountain. So um, the bar side to deliver the experience. And but, you know, I'd say I'm really looking forward to just getting out in the east and interacting with with skiers and riders. And because, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I've got a lot to learn. Is the region new to you from a ski point of view? Have you skied the east or the Midwest before you took this job? I, you know, I've got some catching up to do. Okay. Um, and um, but I expect to make significant headway very quickly. So I'm looking forward to some good, diverse experiences. So I want to talk a little bit more about Vales stepping into these regions. If you go back a while ago, 10, 12 years, Vale really just had one kind of ski area. It had your kind of bucket list resorts, Breckenridge, Heavenly Vale. Starting in 2012, the company crept into the Midwest with these little what folks sometimes call feeder areas, Mount Brighton in Michigan, Afton Alps in Minnesota, Wilmot in Wisconsin. And then, so you had these two kinds of ski areas and then the peak acquisition really was a, a very different kind of portfolio for the most part than what Vail had had before. It was this third kind of area, this sort of drive to weekend destination, places like Mount Snow, Wildcat, Aditash, Hunters, uh, lots of little feeders in there too, like the, the resorts in Ohio and Missouri. Uh, but curious, Tim, how does this middle category fit into Vail's longer term holdings of these feeders and these global resorts like Beaver Creek or Whistler? And how does that whole thing, just that whole ecosystem work together? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and you know, it's really about diversity. You know, I, I think if you look at, at the, the overall strength of the network, um, you know, within Vail Resorts and the, you know, the, the connectivity that's provided between them, you know, by our Epic Pass, um, you know, th these resorts, you know, really feel, feel a great, you know, I don't want to say whole, but, you know, increase the diversity of our overall, um, overall portfolio. And, you know, I think it's really fueled a, a bit of a progression in, in, in the experience expectations. Um, you know, I, and, and I think that progression is in the, the expectation of diversity and experience, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of guests and, you know, within the ski industry, um, you know, who once were only going to, you know, a few specific resorts, you know, they're now seeking out new opportunities. And, and so as we've acquired some of these resorts that are in new geographies, you know, it's really added to, to, to that diversity within our past. And so, you know, I think you tie that if you go back to 2019, when we first introduced our, our Epic for Everyone campaign, um, you know, that's when we kind of wrote the next chapter in the, the, in the history of, of the Epic Pass with the introdu introduction of the, the Epic Day Pass. 
And, you know, I, I think, you know, we think a lot about how our skiers and riders are thinking, whether they're, you know, wanting to ski or ride one day, every day, you know, at only at their, their favorite local or regional resort, um, or they want to venture out to some of the destination resorts, you know, you know, there's an Epic Pass that empowers them to do that easily and affordably. And, and so when you look at where, um, you know, some of these most recent acquisitions are located, you know, at Hunter Mountain in, in the Catskills in New York is a classic example of, you know, being, um, you know, so close to, to major metropolitan areas, um, you know, that, 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 that we needed. Um, you know, we felt that that was a big opportunity, you know, and so it's an ideal setup. So, you know, but, you know, as I said, when you look at our overall network, you know, it's designed intentionally. You know, it's it's not you know it's not only a, a a network of diverse diversity and geography. You know, we're looking for different experiences, and and I think these uh, these most recent acquisitions, you know, fill a a unique set of of new experiences for our pass holders. It's a really expansive portfolio and and very impressive. Do you think Vale is done in the Northeast, or is there more room to grow? You know, I mean, we're we're always going to be opportunistic. Um, and, and looking at ways that we can drive more, more value for our, um, you know, for our pass holders and, um, you know, and, but it, you know, it ladders up to, you know, as I mentioned, ladders up to our strategy of finding ways to, to drive value, but, you know, and we're going to take a really disciplined approach, you know, and, and ensuring that any of the resort acquisitions that we consider are a strategic fit, um, you know, not only for, for our, for our company, but for our guests and for our communities and, um, you know, and so, I, you know, I guess probably a couple of things I'll share on, on, on acquisitions, um, you know, since you brought it up, you know, a lot of our criteria, you know, wraps around, as I mentioned, you know, being additive, you know, additive to our guests in the, in the network model, um, you know, looking for, for resorts that are complementary, you know, and not duplicative, you know, in terms of, of, you know, the type of terrain or the location, we're obviously looking for geographic diversity. Um, you know, to help protect the resorts in the community from, from weather fluctuations. Um, you know, I would say, you know, information and data is a big part of it. You know, I think each acquisition gives us more information about our guests and their skiing habits, which, which make us smarter and, and more relevant when we communicate with them and allows us to, you know, find ways to, to make their experience better. And, and, and you know, and then the final piece that, you know, mentioned a little bit about, about our talent. You know, I think each acquisition adds some incredible talent to our company and, um, you know, it helps address the challenges that we face, um, you know, all across our network. And and so, um, yeah, and so I would think that would apply, um, you know, to opportunities, um, you know, in the east and elsewhere. But that's kind of the framework that we'll go about uh, with looking at the future. The headliner right now in the east, Tim, is Jay Peak. Are you looking at Jay Peak? You know, I can't comment on on you know any speculations on possible acquisitions. Um, you know, the the, the elements of, of our decision making process are you know are kind of outlined, and um, yeah, but I'm not going to get into any specific speculations. Curious about partnerships. Vale has formed some really great partnerships with some real uh, iconic mountains: Telluride, Sun Valley, Snow Basin Resorts of the Canadian Rockies several mountains in Japan and Europe. I'm curious if there are opportunities in the East with say a Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, or uh, the Olympic Regional Development Authority in New York, which manages Whiteface, Gore, and Bel Air. Has Vail or would Vail or will Vail consider partnerships in the East along the lines of its Telluride partnership? Well, you know, you know I think we look at, at, the, uh, at the partnerships in, in very much the same way that, that, that we do acquisitions, um, you know, in ways that, that they can be additive, you know, add to diversity and um, but, you know, you look at the way that, that some of these partnership programs have evolved over, you know, the last many years. I mean, it's been fueled by innovation, um, you know, and designing networks and partnerships are, are certainly a, a big part of that. And, um, but I would say, you know, we're going to explore, explore, you know, kind of a wide range of opportunities and, and we will continue to grow our network. And, um, we, you know, with the intent on increasing the value of the Epic Pass for our guests. And so, um, you know, we'll see what opportunities come about, you know, as time moves on. How about the Midwest? I, I think the Midwest is an interesting area. Again, I grew up there and, and Vail has 10 resorts in the Midwest now, and they're all have some similarities. They're all very small. They're all adjacent to cities, large populations. And the draw there is clear. You, you get folks who commit to an Epic Pass and they take their trip out West. I think Vail is missing an opportunity to actually look at this resort style mountain in the Midwest, of which there are many. You take something like Wilmot in Wisconsin or White Cop in Wisconsin or, or Crystal Mountain in Michigan. 
there's a lot of, and, and this is kind of how Boyne built their whole empire, right? They have Boyne Mountain and Boyne Highlands up in Michigan. Those are very nice actual ski resorts. Is Vail considering expanding more in the Midwest? And would you consider more of a resort style destination mountain in the Midwest rather than just sticking with these little city feeders? You know, I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, I'm not going to get into to speculations on, you know, what we may or, or may not be looking at. But, um, you know, I, I'll always just go back to, you know, we're going to be opportunistic. Um, and, and there's a wide range of scenarios that, you know, that, that we actively consider and look at. Um, you know, but it's got to fall kind of within the framework that, that I previously mentioned. So I want to get into the culture of the company a little bit. You know, Vail has a very distinct corporate culture. And as you said, this whole Eastern footprint has grown very quickly. You go back to 2017, the beginning of 2017, Vail had no presence in the Northeast at all. Then they bought Stowe. Then they bought Triple Peaks. Then they bought Peak Resorts. And suddenly you have this massive portfolio. You have seven resorts in New England. You have one in New York. You have five in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's a big integration job in itself. Add COVID on top of that. And I'd imagine that's been a very challenging process. So how far along is Vail in the process of fully integrating its Northeast resorts into this greater Vail portfolio and, and Vail's way of doing things and Vail's culture? Yeah, great, great question, Stuart. And, um, you know, the, obviously the integration of, of, of a ski area takes time. And, you know, I experienced it, you know, firsthand in Crested Butte. And, um, but I would say that strong progress has been made um, across the Northeast, you know, but with so many with so many resorts now, you know, they're all in different stages. Um, you know, COVID certainly had its effects and slowed things down, you know, in, in a few areas. But um, you know, I couldn't be more proud of the resilience of our teams um, all across the East. And, you know, like just as an example, you know, if I, if I talk about Vermont, um, you know, and looking at kind of where some of those resorts are on, on that, on that, you know, change curve, um, you know, with Stowe being the first acquired back in 2017, um, you know, they've made a lot of headway. And I think the, you know, the guests and the community, um, you know, have a, you know, a clear picture now of the advantages of, of Bell Resorts ownership and, um, you know, looking at, you know, the, the different approach that we take with products with the Epic Pass versus, um, you know, what they used to pay for the, the Stowe season pass. And, right. Um, you know, and then, you know, take Okimo, um, you know, who was next as part of the Triple Peaks deal, you know, a few years ago. And then, you know, Mount Snow brought in the fold with the peak acquisition in 2019. Um, you know, each of them are, are still navigating, you know, a lot of those early twists and turns. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, COVID, you know, did not help, um, yeah. you know, but they, they still made great progress even in the midst of COVID. And, you know, we had to take a lot of the processes that, you know, we used to have in person. Um, you know, like I remember what we experienced in, in Crested Butte where there would be, you know, a tremendous amount of corporate resources that would come in and, you know, and, and, and help train on a lot of the processes. And, you know, with a lot of these peak resorts or the former, former resorts that were part of peak, um, you know, much of that had to be done virtually. And that's, that's, that's more difficult. Um, but I'm really proud of the progress that, you know, that they've made and, you know, and, and I'm only talking about, you know, three examples, you know, you throw, you know, the, the four resorts in New Hampshire, you know, four in Pennsylvania, four in Ohio, two in Missouri, and, you know, they're all working through, uh, you know, the integration process, um, you know, at, at their pace and, you know, but I'd be remiss if I didn't emphasize and acknowledge the, the efforts of our teams at each of these resorts for what they've been through over the last two seasons, um, you know, with the closure in 2020 and then, you know, the, the operational adjustments that, that we made last year, um, you know, throw integration on top of that. Uh, but I would say all things considered, we're in a pretty good place going into this season and our teams on the ground deserve a lot of credit. Looking at this from an operational point of view, I think what Vail encountered in the Northeast is just this very different weather patterns where you get a lot more freeze-thaw cycles because we just don't have the altitude. Uh, what have Vail's challenges been as it's adapted operationally to the Northeast? You know, I, I would say that, um, you know, as we're acquiring these well-established and successful resorts in the Northeast, you know, Vail Resorts didn't just get the mountains and the brand names. You know, we got the people you know, the leaders that are, you know, passionate employees at all levels, um, you know, and the processes and the systems that, you know, were already proven to be successful in the Eastern region. Um, you know, we acquired mountains with incredible snowmaking capabilities to, to counter that, you know, sometimes uncooperative weather. Um, you know, you take Mount Snow as an example, you know, it's it's been incredibly impactful to acquire a resort that's 
you know, arguably has one of the most powerful snowmaking systems in the East. You know, I mean, capable of, of taking hundreds of acres of terrain from bare ground to commercially skiable and in, in, you know, as, as little as only a day's time. You know, there is a ton to be gained from that level of capability. You know, when the approach to snowmaking in the Rockies in the West is, is obviously much different. Um, so, you know, we've learned a lot about, you know, the way that those systems operate that we can apply in, in other areas. But, but again, you know, it's not about, it's not just about the snow guns and the groomers, you know, I, I emphasize the people, you know, we were very much set up for success in the East from day one, you know, thanks to the incredible ranks of, of experienced professionals. Um, you know, it's an invaluable piece of every acquisition. And in this case, it's, it has made it much more smooth than, um, than otherwise. All right, let's talk about Epic Passes here. So there's a little concern when Vail bought out Peak that they would eliminate Northeast specific Epic Passes. Vail quickly quieted those concerns with what I think are two just incredible passes, the Northeast Value Pass and the Northeast Midweek Pass. Uh, these all give you different levels of access. They all have some stow access. They have some holiday blackouts. Uh, but the, the price point on them is, is just unbelievable. And the access is... Uh, is very, very generous. So uh, t- take us into this decision, Tim, to continue to offer Northeast specific Epic passes. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we're a data-driven company and, and we listen to, to, to what the guests are telling us to determine kind of where their needs are and and ultimately what's valuable to them. And, and I think, you know, in this case, our intent was to, um, you know, meet the, the different needs. You know, I mentioned a little bit about, you know, kind of whether, you know, guests are skiing one day or every day or local mountain, you know, destination mountain to some extent. And, 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 and then we looked at kind of the uniqueness of the Eastern region, you know, with so many mountains within, um, you know, kind of a reasonable driving distance of, you know, what is it? I think it's 20, 20% of the entire U S population. You know, thanks to the you know, markets in Boston and New York City and, mm-hmm. you know, in that uniqueness and the, the data that we have on skiers and riders behavior, um, you know, as as the Epic Pass has grown in popularity, you know, that's what really gave us the indication that a, a regional, a re, I'm sorry, a, a regional pass product, um, you know, would cater strongly to, to, to what, um, you know, so many of these guests are looking for. And so, you know, it, it made a lot of sense to, um to, to throw a pass like this out there because we ultimately want to create value where, where our guests um, find it. Your CEO, Rob Katz, has called out the Northeast as a region of strength in recent earnings calls in relation to Epic Passes. Just how well are these passes selling? You know, I mean, they're selling well. I mean, obviously, um, you know, as we as we announced in some of our recent recent earnings, um, you know, a lot, a lot of strength has, has been seen in the East. Um, you know, the Portfolio has obviously grown. And so, you know, with that, there are many more options for, um, you know, the, the, the strong population base in the East to access. And, um, you know, and so that's a big part of, of, of where we are and feel really good about, um, about the strength moving forward. All right, let's zoom out a little bit here. Go back in time. Uh, since you've been in with Vail since 2004, you saw this all happen in real time. Uh, where did the idea for the Epic Pass come from in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, the, the single mountain season passes with, you know, where, where they were from a pricing perspective. And, you know, if you look at that, you know, that product strategy, um, it had limited appeal. And, you know, the value proposition only applied to kind of a select portion of the ski base. And, and we really wanted to change that dynamic and, and, and make skiing more accessible and, and certainly more affordable. And so that's, you know, when we launched the the Epic Pass in, in March 2008 and, you know, and cut its price. I'm trying to remember, I think when we first launched it, you know, it was like $560 or something like that. And, you know, offered the, you know, the unlimited unrestricted access, I think six mountains at that time. And, um, you know, obviously incredible value for skiers and riders, but, you know, I think one of the key switches was, you know, if they purchased ahead of the season. Um, and so the timing of that transaction, um, you know, was pretty different from where the industry was at that time. And, and, and many in the industry called us crazy, but, but, you know, the goal was twofold, you know, make the sport more accessible and creates, um, stability, you know, for our business and, and for the industry. I mean, the, the industry ripples have been Titanic because that decision to drive down the season pass at Vail mountain and, and combine it onto other mountains really has had this ripple effect of driving down the price of season passes almost all over the country. Any market, 
that Vale goes into the season pass prices drop. As you mentioned, Stowe's season pass the year before Vale bought it was $2,300. It was only good at Stowe. Vale buys it, drops on the Epic Pass, was probably about $800 at the time. And it's good at all your Vale Mountains. Now all of a sudden you can take a trip to Whistler or Park City or Vale. What I mean, the, the, the price benefit is obvious to skiers and riders, but what else are they getting out of the Epic Pass? Yeah, no, another great question. Um, you know, and, and I think after we, you know, shifted the mindset away from from this kind of locals only option to an affordable kind of flexible option accessible to everyone, you know, it offers it offers pass holders a lot of choice of where to go. Um, you know, they can they can choose new experiences um, or they can go where the conditions are best um, in any given season. And so I think that flexibility is a, you know, a strong driver of, of improved experience. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I think also I would say, um, you know, that I think skiers and riders feel less pressure, um, you know, to get their money's worth on specific days. And, and so, you know, we're seeing, you know, significant increases in repeat visitation, um, you know, loyalty has grown and, and, and we can see that, you know, and, and we look at all of our, our, our data points and what our guests are telling us. And, and, and on average, um, those who are in a season pass have about a 10% higher satisfaction, um, and so, you know, ultimately I think, you know, this past product not only creates great value, but I think it also improves the perception of the experience, um, uh, that our guests are having at, at our mountains. You mentioned that everyone in the industry thought you were crazy when you did this. And, and I'd imagine the reaction was something like, Hey, why are you undercutting us by so much? You're going to force us to bring down this product that's profitable for us. And, and make it into this discount product. But and it's a very counterintuitive move. I mean, here we are, you know, 15 years later or 13 years later, and it's obviously worked out quite well. And you have a lot of imitators, Altera, and a, a lot of the indies are fighting it out to form these coalitions to, to try to uh, have a good answer to the Epic Pass. But how is this pass good for your company and by extension for the broader industry? Well, you know, we really wanted to find a way to, 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 to find a partnership, you know, between the, between the, the you know, priorities of the company and the value proposition of our guests, um, you know, in a way that can ultimately result in stability. Um, and, 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 you know, that's why we, you know, we we're incentivizing guests to buy ahead of the season, um, you know, that, that adds that stability, um, you know, to an industry, which I think we, we could agree that was previously ruled by weather. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've got the opportunity to lock in revenue ahead of the season, which, um, you know, gives us the opportunity to continually reinvest, um, you know, back into our resorts, um, back into the guest experience, you know, investing in our employees, our communities, um, you know, the environment, um, you know, we're really excited about, um, you know, our, our commitment to zero by 2030 and, 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 and all of these things are dramatically impacted, um, you know, by that, that, that increase in, in stability. Um, but you know, it, it had to be a partnership, you know, it had to be a, a good trade, um, between the company and our guests. And, and, and we feel that, um, you know, the way that we've, we've innovated the approach is that, you know, skiers and riders get a great deal. Um, the company gets a great deal and, and there's a strong partnership and that was ultimately the objective. So you, you launched the Epic Pass in 2008 at 500 some dollars, you mentioned kind of crept up toward a thousand. And then this spring, Vail shocked the ski world, dropping past prices 20%. Obviously, a tremendous deal. It's almost too good not to buy. Uh, but I'm very concerned about crowding going into this season, Tim, and I think a lot of other people are as well. What is Vail doing to get ahead of potential crowding issues now that you're selling more Epic Passes than ever? No, it's a fair question. Um, you know, what I would say, Stuart, is that, you know, we don't believe that this price reset will cause crowding. And, and the reason why is, you know, a significant portion of those who are moving into passes, which is a part of the, you know, the overall numbers that we report, they were already on the mountain um, with a paid lift ticket. Mm-hmm. And, and we're just making it easier for them to enjoy the benefits of purchasing ahead of the season with a pass. And, um, and so in, in you combine that with what we already know about what happens when we're able to move people into a pass, um, you know, that helps spread them into different times of the season away from peak times. Um, and then we're obviously continuing to, uh, to, to work to improve the guest experience and make investments into you know, our on-mountain capital, um, you know, technological innovations, you know, new approaches to um, you know, loading, you know, lift loading um, is something that we focused so much attention on last season and learned so many things that 
um, that we didn't know and, and all intended to apply to this season and moving forward to decrease wait times, um, improve reliability. Um, you know, and it's a big part of why we made the huge announcement a number of weeks ago with our Epic Lift upgrade, um, you know, intended to, um, you know, to decrease wait times and improve reliability. God, those are so exciting. And I want to get into those lifts in a moment. So as you're moving folks into Epic Passes, are, are you seeing the people who formerly bought lift tickets going into Epic Day Pass or like an Epic Local? What, what sorts of passes are they going to? You know, there's a, a wide range of, of migration and, you know, it really just kind of depends upon the, the type of an experience that, that our pass holders are looking for. And, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, one of the, the whys behind, you know, some of the regional products and, you know, it's set up in a way to be tailored to, to what our guests are looking for, um, you know, but it's it, it's a mix across our portfolio of products. And, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to get into you know, some of the specific um, details on each of them, but it's it's pretty well mixed across our portfolio of products. You know, look, looking at those day tickets, Tim, I wrote a piece yesterday and just looking at the enormous sticker price of day tickets. And it's just curious to me as Vail has this day ticket product, which is an excellent deal. I, I think you can get day tickets for, I think it's $70 right now. And then they go up, they go down a little as you buy multiple days. Um, and, and those would be good at, say, Vail Mountain, but I can still go to Vail Mountain and buy $200 lift tickets and, and no one shuffles me back to the Epic Day Pass, right? So I kind of have to know. Is Vail aware of that sort of customer experience? And is there any effort to better tie those things together so that folks aren't paying $1,000 for something they could be paying $500 for? You know, I, I mentioned a little bit about, you know, when we were designing the, the you know, the Northwest Value Pass, um, you know, and, and how we're listening to, to our guests. And, you know, and as we as I mentioned, we're such a data driven company now that, um, you know, we're, we've got a lot to learn. And 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 I would say, like, I love it when these conversations come up, you know, and, and you know, I love hearing the, you know, different points of view and, and you know, and, and talking about, you know, different innovative ways that. Um, you know, we can we can progress the, the, the business and the industry moving forward. And, um, and, and and that's one of the things that we're looking at and trying to understand, you know, how our guests are, are thinking and approaching those decisions. But, you know, ultimately, we you know, we want to increase the value of, of, of being in a past product um, and, and think that we've done a really good job of creating a, a you know, a strong value proposition for our guests, um, you know, with a good, strong portfolio of past products and. Um, but I think as we move forward, you know, we're going to continue looking at opportunities to innovate and what those are going to be or to be seen. Uh, we've got a lot to learn this season moving forward. Um, but but yeah, we're uh, we're definitely going to continue to be listening to what our guests have to say. I look forward to that evolution. I, I want to talk about the mountains, but one one going back to crowding just for a moment. Vail had a really good reservation system in place last year. Uh, I, I used it myself. I I liked it. I didn't like that. I couldn't ski two mountains in a day I, because you have so many mountains close to each other. I like to kind of mountain hop. Um, but otherwise, it worked really well. The technology was great. Uh, the company discarded it this year. I thought that could have been a really good way to to you know, put a check on these tremendous Epic Pass sales and making sure that they didn't overrun them, that folks didn't overrun the mountains. Uh, but you discarded it. Why was that? You know, I mean, ultimately, we designed that system to, to help safely manage on mountain capacity, you know, during the pandemic. And, you know, and when we, we announced back in March that, you know, that, that, that we're not planning to have the reservation system in, in place this season. But, you know, similar to what, what I shared about, you know, our, our, our progress on, on pass sales, you know, I think anybody who's worried about the absence of the reservation system leading to, you know, longer lift lines, um, you know, we've got such extensive learnings from last season around, you know, lift loading efficiencies. And, you know, we're implementing, you know, new strategies to materially reduce wait times and, um, you know, but I, you know, I, it was just not a, a system that, you know, is, was, was designed and intended for something outside of, of, of the pandemic. And so, um, you know, we're intended to operate, you know, as efficiently as we can this season and feel very confident, um, going in. All right. Let's talk about the mountains, Tim, as you mentioned, uh, Vail announced a monster package of lift upgrades a few weeks ago. Uh, this first one was not one of them. Okimo, this pro project is actually underway this summer. So tell us about this big lift project at Okimo and how that will transform the experience on that mountain. Yeah, we're, we're very excited about what, what we're going to debut this season at Okimo. You know, we've got two, two upgraded lifts this season. We've got a, a new high speed six passenger chair lift. 
um, that'll replace the, the quantum lift. Um, and the existing, um, you know, high-speed quad that is the quantum will move over to where the, uh, the Green Ridge triple um, is currently. Um, you know, so the combination of those two, you know, we think is going to significantly, um, you know, improve, you know, circulation and, and access to, to those sides of, of the mountain. Um, and so, you know, the, the quantum lift will be renamed to the quantum six um, and the, you know, the Green Ridge will, will be the, uh, the Evergreen Summit Express. And the other piece that I'm excited about or we're excited about for the, uh, you know, the area of the mountain around the, the Evergreen is we're going to have a new connector trail um, that'll, you know, enable kind of direct access from kind of skiers left of, of the top of, of Evergreen to be able to ski back into that lift, which, you know, we think is going to significantly decrease, um, you know, some of the, some of the, the burden that, that, that tends to fall on the sunburst six. Um, and so, you know, ultimately we're just trying to spread more, more guests around the mountain and, you know, they're doing some additional snowmaking, um, upgrades upon uh, upper world cup and Sapphire. Um, you know, a number of different reconfigurations around the mountain to, uh, to accommodate as much um, snowmaking coverage as we can. So excited about um, what's coming down the road for Okimo. Yeah, the new trail map is online. It looks really awesome. Uh, you now have six high-speed lifts on Okimo, which is tremendous. That's a great experience. Everyone loves high-speed lifts, um, especially your uh, Okimo skiers. How do you find that balance, though, Tim, between a modern lift fleet and, you know, this bomber uphill capacity and managing the number of skiers on the hill. So you don't overcrowd the people coming down. Yeah. You know, what I would say is, you know, I don't, I don't know if balance um, is, is the right, the right word here. You know I mean? I think, you know, you know, faster and more efficient lifts are, are, are a key to getting, you know, skiers and riders onto the mountain and spreading them out, um, you know, as, as much as possible across the, the terrain acreage. Um, and, and, you know, we're always looking at ways to, to kind of optimize that flow throughout the resort that, you know, as, as we improve some of these lifts, I think it makes the, the, the mountain feel like it's skiing even bigger, you know, as we can move people into specific areas, um, you know, but it, I don't know that it's really a balance. We kind of look at, at each opportunity, um, on kind of how it fits within the way that, that, that our skiers and riders are flowing around the mountain. And to the extent that we see an opportunity to, to upgrade a fixed grip to a um, to a high speed and it you know will ultimately significantly contribute to that increase in experience, you know, we'll, we'll pursue it. Um, but I don't know that it, there's ever really a final balance because it's such a fluid, fluid uh, evolution of how the their skiers and riders ski the mountain. All right. Down to Mount Snow, which will get its second six pack, which I dearly hope takes some uh, pressure off the Bluebird Express, which is a very, very, very popular lift. Tell us about that project and what it's replacing. Yeah, I'm, you know, excited about Mount Snow as well. Um, you know, this will be a new high speed six pack um, that'll replace the two existing fixed grip lifts, the, the Tumbleweed and Sundance, um, you know, right on the face of the mountain. Um, you know, and, and I think similar to a lot of our upgrade projects, you know, this is intended to significantly improve, you know, some underutilized terrain. Um, but I think almost more important to alleviate pressure on some of the other lifts in the main base area, you know, primarily the Bluebird. Um, and, and so, you know, the, if you think about, you know, replacing two fixed grips, um, you know, with a, a high speed six pack, you know, the increased uphill capacity in that area, um, you know, is expected to increase by 70%. Mm, um, so that's a big upgrade for, for Mount Snow. And, you know, I was out there about, about three or four weeks ago and to be able to, to, to see that, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a big deal. Is there an opportunity to land this new lift on the summit? Because the current Sundance lift, uh, ends short of the summit on little John. So have you staked out the line yet? Yeah, we have, you know, and it, it's going to be on the same line. Um, yeah. you know, and, 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 you know, that we'll probably move the bottom terminal around just a little bit to get it, you know, in the right spot. Um, you know, kind of just, just, just to the left of the hotel, um, but otherwise it's, it's going to be on the same line. All right. Up to Stowe. I am very excited about this one, a six pack to replace the mountain triple. And you're going to get rid of that horrible walk up from the parking lot, <laughs> which is, which is just brutal, especially if you have kids. So tell us about this six pack at Stowe and why you decided to replace the, uh, prioritize that triple for replacement. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, you know, we obviously prioritize guest experience and, and I would say this is probably one of the most obvious. And, and, and I think, you know, it's not only going to solve the, you know, the climb to, to, to get up from the lodge, but, um, you know, significantly increasing access to, to, to what I think could arguably be some of Stowe's, you know, best intermediate terrain. 
you know, on the, on the Mansfield, Mansfield side of the mountain. Um, and so really excited to, to get some guests in there who, you know, probably traditionally have, have been a bit reluctant to, to get up there, um, you know, early in the mornings. Um, you know, and similar to, similar to Mount Snow, you know, intended to significantly relieve pressure on the quad and the gondola, um, you know, and, and, and improve the, you know, the flow of traffic from the toll house area. Um, you know, the other thing I think is really interesting, we were talking about this last week, is that, you know, the lift line actually has pretty good protection from the wind. Mm-hmm. And, and we're actually designing the towers strategically to be a bit more uh, low profile, um, you know, to give this lift, you know, the opportunity to, to be able to, to, to operate more consistently when, you know, that wind is ripping, ripping across the ridge. Um, so hopefully that'll help us maintain service on some of those blustery, um, you know, New England days. Um, so, yeah, really excited about, about that project. And, um, you know, similar to Mount Snow, I was out there about two or three weeks ago and, you know, and walking that with, uh, with Bobby Murphy, the GM, and, and kind of looking at how that's going to land and, um, you know, getting that right down in a parking. Um, man, what an incredible experience that's going to be compared to what's there right now. Yeah, that, that you're right. That blue pod skiers right of that lift is, is just outstanding and it's always empty. So really looking forward to that one. Going over to New Hampshire, there's long been a, an expansion project in the works at Mount Sunapee. I know you can't talk about that much, but what can you tell us, if anything, about the status of that expansion? Yeah, you know, it, it's not our focus right now. And, you know, and, and you know, and you can see that in our, our annual operating plan for, for this season. And, you know, we're continuing to, to learn as much as we can and, and, you know, listening to the community and stakeholders. And, um, and, and I think, you know, once we get a little bit further down the road, um, you know, we'll be in the position to make a you know, more informed decision about those projects. Okay, over on Aditash, you are upgrading the east-west double-doubles with a fixed-grip quad. Talk about that decision and why that lift was a priority for replacement. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, those lifts that, you know, kind of reached a point that, you know, they're they're so prone to, to ongoing maintenance and, and service interruptions that, you know, it was just time for time for the upgrade. Um, you know, and, and, you know, those lifts are some of the best beginner terrain um, at Aditash and, and certainly serve as a you know, a vital connection to get over to, to the Bear Peak base. And um, so we really need to have efficient, reliable service at, at that location. Um, you know, but I, you know, certainly recognize that there's a lot of improvement projects on the table, um, you know, at Attach, and, and it's intended to be a part of a multi-year plan. You know, certainly recognize that, you know, there's opportunity for the, you know, for the Summit Triple. And, and we've got a lot to learn. Um, you know, and, and there's some complicated terrain service by, by that lift. And, um, I think we need some time to, to kind of understand the, the, the best way in which we can, um, you know, drive, um, you know, great experience at Aditash and, um, and, but I would say that, you know, the time is right to upgrade the double doubles. Um, but we're not planning to stop there. Is the intent then to replace the summit triple at some point in the coming years? You know, like I said, I mean, we, we need some time to evaluate. Um, and kind of see there, there's, there's a wide range of, of potential options um, for, for addressing that terrain um, and, and whether it's a replacement or, you know, some, some different configurations, um, you know, we need, to, we need to take some time to, to learn and understand before, you know, we jump in to, you know, be presumptuous to assume that we know the best solution. Okay, up at Wildcat, no new lift, but you are overhauling the Wildcat Express. That's the Alpha Lift based to Summit. Talk about that project and how much it will extend the life of that lift. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Wildcat Express was definitely, um, you know, in need of some significant overhaul. And, um, you know, we, we replaced the haul rope and, and you know, a number of the, the vital drive components. And, um, you know, this is intended to significantly increase the reliability and performance of that lift, which, you know, unfortunately, we saw some service interruptions in the recent seasons, um, you know, with some maintenance issues. And, you know, but, you know, ultimately, the, the lifts will tell you when they need to be overhauled. And I think many of our guests would probably agree that the Express was speaking loud and clear. And so we listened and excited about what this upgrade will mean for this season. And that work will be done prior to the start of the season? Yeah, yeah, we're in good shape. Uh, real quick about Wildcat. Wildcat has traditionally been the one resort, one of the six resorts in the Northeast that extended the season into May. Does Vale intend to continue that tradition? You know, I mean, possible? I think, yeah, I mean, I think similar to, to, to the decisions about lifts, um, you know, operating deep into the season, you know, that's another area of something that, that we're going to learn. And a lot of the decisions tend to tend to be, you know, based on kind of where we are kind of mid season. 
And, and so, you know, we, we, we try to make those decisions, you know, as strategically as we can. And I think as the season unfolds, you know, to the extent that we see an opportunity, you know, we'll have some conversations and, and see what, what's best for the business and for the guests. And, um, you know, but right now we're just looking forward to getting into the season and, and seeing what unfolds. All right. Down to Pennsylvania at Jack Frost, you are going to replace the B and C double triple with a fixed grip quad. So you're taking two triples uh, and it, and going to one quad, it seems like that would lower capacity, but maybe I'm missing some technology bit here. Why does it make sense to replace two triples with one quad? No, you know, great question. And it can certainly see how that can, can seem a bit counterintuitive at first, but you know, we're a data-driven company and, and we took a really hard look at the numbers and, and understanding kind of how, how the combination of those machines were, were operating and, and take that account when, when we're making our decisions. And, you know, we ultimately learned that, you know, a fully loaded and fully operational quad, um, you know, will provide more uphill capacity than, than the current double, triple setup, the way that those are operated. You know, there's a, you know, a fair bit of inconsistency with whether, you know, both sides are operating or whether they can operate. And so, um, you know, having a, a consistent machine, um, you know, as a quad, you know, we feel will ultimately be an improvement from what exists now. So in addition, you have another lift upgrade at Jack Frost. You have uh, one at Big Boulder. You're replacing a lift at Boston Mills, another at Brandywine. Rather than talk about those in particular, all of these mountains have in common that they have very old lift fleets and they have a lot of lifts, right? Because they are just these small mountains that are near cities and they just get, bring a lot of people. How do you approach this puzzle? When, when, you say, when you have six lifts that date back to the 60s to the 70s, and the newest ones from 1972, how do you even prioritize that and decide yeah. what to replace? Yeah, well, you know, no question that, you know, the ski industry is is very capital intensive and, mm-hmm. you know, and maintaining and, and replacing aging equipment, um, you know, is, is a crucial piece of, of that kind of operations you know, puzzle. Um, you know, but when we're deciding, you know, whether to replace a lift or, 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 you know, invest in, in ongoing maintenance, it really comes down to two things. Uh, you know, first and foremost is safety. And, and then number two is what can we do strategically to improve the guest experience? Um, and, and so, you know, aside from that, you know, we need to make sure that we're providing, um, you know, the best experience possible, knowing that significant changes, you know, like this must happen incrementally. Um, you know, but, you know, we're going to look at what the, what the most immediate needs are and, and continue to, to, to reassess over time. But, you know, it's, it's 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 a it's a tough decision making process when we put them all on the table and looking at, at opportunities, but ultimately it's about safety and where we can make the biggest impact on the guest experience. All right, this is my last question for you because I just have to ask you about Afton Alps. Seventeen chairlifts, all of them built between 1968 and 1979. Most of them side by side around a ridge. Most of them old halls. I'm really surprised that Vale hasn't started to consolidate some of these. What's the long term thinking around Afton Alps lift fleet? You know, what's interesting about Afton Alps is, is their lift fleet actually has some of the best lift downtime in the company. Really? And, and so our lifts there are in pretty good shape. And, and, and so, you know, with that, you know, if we pulled them all out and, and consolidated, you know, the ROI is just not going to be there right now. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing, you know, with the high volume of lifts that we have there, you know, it gives us really solid uphill capacity on, on the busiest days. And, um, but yeah, but you know, there's definitely going to be an opportunity for future consolidation. And um, but I think as, as you can see with the recent capital announcement, um, you know, there's stronger needs in other regions right now. And you know, we feel pretty darn good about where we are at Afton right now. All right, Tim. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. Lots of exciting things ahead for Vale Resorts in the East and elsewhere. I cannot wait to to watch it happen. Uh, hopefully, I'll get to meet up with you out in the East sometime this season. Thanks, Stuart. Definitely look forward to it. Thanks for the time. That's Tim Baker, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts Eastern Region. Vail has big, big things planned for this region. If you like the lift projects they just announced, I feel fairly confident in saying that they are just getting started here. Just wait on that Aditash triple. They're going to give you something great up there. So thank you very much for that, Tim. And thank you very much, Vail Resorts. We need to do more of that. This podcast is better when it features the full range of lift surf skiing. And the truth is that the Storm Skiing Podcast needs more Vail. So let's make that happen, Vail. Thank you all very much for listening. 
I mentioned in the intro that I have a bunch more Eastern podcasts coming your way. Here they are. Shawnee, Pennsylvania next week. I swapped that out for Shawnee Peak, Maine. Now that Boyne bought Shawnee Peak, I want to wait a beat before hosting them in the podcast because you know Boyne has huge things ahead. The week after that, I'll have Smuggler's Notch owner Bill Stritzler on the podcast. Then Sean Sutner, who is a really excellent journalist covering New England skiing out of Massachusetts. Finally, in early December, I will have Wachusett owner Jeff Crowley on the podcast. Oh, and mixed in there, a little place called Jackson Hole as CEO Mary-Kate Buckley joins me. So remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get those podcasts as soon as they drop. Also follow along with The Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. You can also find The Storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.